market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special... I'm not even sure I can say bonus. I'm not sure I can say surprise, but our regular Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me for this wonderful Sunday afternoon is Dr. Nearby Mahati. G'day, Doc. Good, a Captain. How are you, buddy? I'm, well, I'm very good. Very, very good. good because it's a beautiful Sunday here. Well, it's kind of rainy Thursday, but we'll pretend it's a beautiful <laughs> Sunday. Theatre of the mind, mate. Theatre of the mind. In, in people's minds, I'm a dashingly handsome bloke with plenty of hair and a, and a good sense of humour is what I like to pretend. I can be anyone on the radio. It's great. Theatre of the mind. Should I've got on? plenty of hair that needs cut, cutting. <laughs> oh, mate, it's a bit like that, isn't it? I, I'm, I, that's, that's the only benefit of being a bald bloke in lockdown, mate. As long as I've got a, uh, as long as I've got a Gillette Mach 3 blade somewhere handy, I'm, I'm good, <laughs> good to go. <laughs> but no dramas at all. We did give my seven-year-old a bit of a, a isolation buzz cut, I have to say, with the clippers, um, which is now growing out. So that was a pretty easy solution. But otherwise, I'm, I'm just nice not to have to worry about haircuts, is all I'm saying. The one, the one benefit for the bald bloke no haircuts in isolation. So I'll take it's a that. big benefit. No shampoo too. <laughs> that's something. Exactly. Just a bit of soap, mate. Job done. Or <laughs> should we get off? That, that's a pretty good tangent, actually. Haircuts and shampoo. That's not bad for our first minute and a half of the podcast. Should we, <laughs> let's should let's we, talk about something more sensible. People we probably, talk to right, yeah, Let's do that. Yeah, right. yeah I think so. Okay. <laughs> We've got lots and lots and lots to cover, as always. Thank you very much for those people who sent in their requests. Mate, before I go there, I'm going to give the socials out right now. Because if there are things on people's minds, we want them to be able to get them to us as quickly as we they possibly can. Let's start with the only place you can get both Doc, myself, and thirdly, the Motley Fool's corporate account, is in Twitter. So go to at Aniaban Mahati, go to at TMF Scott P, or at the Motley Fool AU. Those are our three Twitter handles. You can get any or all of us. Um, feel free to throw us a question, leave us a comment, um, ask us whatever you want to know. We'll try and do our best to answer it. Probably not directly on Twitter, although we always like a bit of a chat. But certainly we'll try and answer it on the podcast. If you're on Instagram, Doc, you're not on Instagram yet, are you? No, Instagram. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> Fingers crossed. You can get me at TMF Scott P. And again, The Motley Fool's at The Motley Fool AU. Or on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia. Pretty straightforward. And I'm Scott Phillips Money. So that's all on Facebook. And of course, if you do want to send us an email, you can do that as well. Info at fool.com.au. I will say, uh, mate, we can't always answer every single question we're getting anymore. So um, our apologies to those who don't get their questions answered. Um, we're not ignoring you. We don't hate you. We just literally have more questions than we can deal with. Um, so we try and pick the ones that are the newest, the most different, the most interesting, the ones that we think we can add most value to on air and are going to be most interested to our listeners. So if it's a really, really specific kind of satiric question, we probably won't cover it. Um, unless, it, again, we think it's relevant. But generally speaking, the more entertaining, the more fun, the more applicable, the better the chance of having your question answered. It doesn't hurt to say nice things about us either, does it, Doc? Oh, definitely. Always say nice things. Give us a review. Five stars speaking, minimum. Six stars which, if possible. We got a question from Tristan. Tristan says, what's good, Scott and Doc? I don't know what's good. What's good, mate? How'd you answer well, that? What's good? Er, well, everything is good. Cafes are life open. You know, well, life is great. <laughs> <laughs> I got a homemade coffee in front of me. I'm looking forward to getting that. I'm, mate, I, I've done a couple of takeaways. I am... Desperately looking forward to getting to my local cafe for a bit of lunch, I've got to say. A bit of, bit of, bit of brunch, a bit of scrambled eggs. They do a really good scrambled eggs at my local. You've been there. Ha, um, ha, for, have, to a good beef burger too. Have you booked yourself a spot? Because otherwise you're not no, going to get one. I, you know what? I kind of can't bring myself to do it yet because I figure they've only got 10 people in there. So I'm not going to – I'm going to let them just – you know, I'm, I'm a regular. I'll go back there. I figure I'll let them do the do, – you know, treat, serve other people first. But at some point, I'm there with bells on, mate, just quietly. 
Anyway, I'm not- Tristan says, what's good? We think we know the answer. Hope life is treating you well in this crazy time. I think it is. He says, the Motley Fool is all about long-term investing. Absolutely, Tristan. Well done. So today, he asks, which economy or region would be your number one pick to invest in for the next five to ten years? He says, US, Australia, China, Europe, etc. He says, the US has outperformed for so long that it seems a reversion to the mean is likely. Keep on cracking on. By the way, left you guys a five-star review on the App Store. Good man, Tristan. If all of this was like Tristan, Doc, life would be good, wouldn't it? Well, life would be awesome. You know, I said six-star reviews now are the mandatory <laughs> thing, right? Can you do that? No, five-star no longer cuts it. <laughs> Mate, can you speak to Tim Cook and get an extra star added to the rating system? Because they can't uh, give us a six-star review till we actually have a six-star to click on. Well, maybe they can just make it, enable it for us. <laughs> mate, he would do that for you, I'm pretty sure. I gotta oh, say, sure. Mate, just just quote the amount of bloody positive policy you give him over the years. He should at least give us one more star, probably two. I think. Oh, I think so. seven stars, sure. I I, I I agree with that. <laughs> All right, dude. So Tristan's question is, I think, was a really really cool question. It's very different to the one we normally get, which makes it fun to talk about. Now, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna make you answer first, mate, because I can. At least I'm gonna invite you to answer first. You can choose to refuse, I suppose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Investing in a region is funny and an economy is funny, right? Because there are so many out there, there's so many options. And as always, there is both quality and there is price. And so mm. at some point, you know, the I was, I was reflecting only last night actually with a neighbour about the, the dot-com crash of 99 and saying almost all of those businesses that were started then were businesses that would go on to if not literally in those same forms. But the idea is floated in 99 are businesses we know and love today. Maybe not the same companies, but the ideas were right. They're just way too early and the share prices were way too high, right? If you'd, the old, the old pets.com was the poster child for, for internet stupidity, right? Fast forward 20 years and billions of dollars are being spent online ordering stuff for pets. Like it was the right idea. People ridiculed it because there wasn't really a business model and there wasn't really enough people using it at that point, but they were, the, they were dead right. They were just too early and didn't have enough cash to see it through. So there was always the, the, the kind of the, the economy, the region, the, the country, and then there's the price. I don't, I don't know about you, Matt, I don't have a strong view of the valuations of most countries and regions when it comes to their stock markets, but we should acknowledge that's a, that's a reasonable consideration. So with that preamble, mate, if you had to pick one country, one region, a couple of countries, a couple of regions, where would you say, and, and I don't, you know, I'll let you answer it, but where, where, would you, where would you suggest to our listeners is the one most likely to do well over the next five or ten years? So I'm actually going to do a little preamble first. I'd say that uh, dissociate, I think it's very common. I think So I've seen this on Twitter a number of times, and I, see, I think this is, is a common commentary that I'm trying to refrain people from using. Um, Was it me? You know, people say, oh, no, 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 nothing you. Uh, there, there are actually some really famous people who do this. Like, okay. and, and it, you know, and uh, instead of getting into a fist fight with those famous people, I said, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, because that's the last thing I want to do on Twitter is get into a fist fight with anyone, uh, especially more people with, you know, who've got blue ticks yes, and are, you know, got thousands of followers, you know, or, or hundreds of thousands of followers. So right. one of the things that people say, oh, look at this, are, we have a huge number of unemployment rate, uh, you know, so let's say somebody's an American and they're saying, look at our unemployment numbers at this big, why is the stock market doing so well? Yeah. You could apply the same argument to anywhere, but that's mm. and what I st- what I say to people is the stock market is not the economy. Mm-hmm. Right. Number one. I think that's, that's really you know, as a, 
Yeah, and that's important because companies on the stock market actually do not work on just one economy, right? So if you have BHP, it is not just the Australian economy that matters to BHP, right? It matters that who else is buying that stuff Mm -hmm. and why are they buying it? That's an example. The same thing would hold for an iPhone. Well, you know, it's not just the Americans who are buying the iPhone. The whole world buys the iPhone, right? So I think that's the number one thing that people miss when they're talking about economies. And, And of course, developed economies are going to do in terms of growth rates, they're going to be slower than the you know developing economies just by the sheer fact of size and you know mm-hmm. you know where they are in the state of development and so and so on and so forth, right? So if if I had to pick a number in terms of which economy is going to grow faster, I'd say China is going to grow faster of the lot here. Said U.S., Australia, Europe, and so on, right? That's just you know it's a developing economy is going to do, or most of the developing economy is going to on average grow faster than the mm-hmm. uh, the developed economies. That's number one. In terms of the stock market, though. If again, if he's picking, if he's just thinking in terms of not individual companies, but in terms of like the the index or or yeah. indices, then I would say that you know sort of the the U.S. market I think would outperform all the other markets, and oh, the large. Yeah, and I've said that a number of times, and that, and and this has been true for the let's say the past decade, as he has pointed out, and it's largely because I think as tech becomes sort of the glue force for everything and we you know become more distributed mm. and we do all these things using technology a large percentage of technology companies are again I'll say they did not be American but they're listed in America right that's okay. the important thing right so if you have an Atlassian which is an Australian company but that's listed in America well mm. you want to get the gains of that you're gonna to have to invest in that market right right, right so right. so that's the I, I think even if you're the best Chinese company, even today, as as the global standard stands, then the best Chinese companies want to be listed in America again mm-hmm. for the capital flow and so. On. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not a nationalism thing. I think it's just a practical viewpoint that that market overall is going to do better just for those reasons. Um, that is, you know, attractor of capital, the best capital goes there, therefore the best companies goes there because the best growth rate goes there. It would, and, and to talk to your point about NASDAQ then versus NASDAQ now, um, I'd say that, you know, NASDAQ then in, in the dot-com time, there were companies which had zero zero dollars of revenue but had like <laughs> That's right. $50, $50 million of valuation, right? Yeah, yeah. That is not the case today. <laughs> companies that have high valuation, seemingly high valuation that many people can't get their heads around, Actually, have billions of dollars of revenue, billions of dollars on their uh, on their books, and um, you, you know, like these are companies that are not raising cash to survive, right? Yeah, these yeah. are companies that have so much cash that they don't know what to do. They can close shop and sit. <laughs> so, so I think you know, I think that's the it's it's a it's. It's the, uh, you know, I hate saying this, but it's like the rich get richer sort of phenomena. The yep. the companies that have the most cash, that have generated the most revenue, are the ones that are going to generate the most cash and the most revenue. Uh, and on average, those companies are listed in the U.S. markets. So this is not about the U.S. economy, it's about the U.S. markets. I think on yeah, average, yeah. I think that market yeah. is going to do better. Yeah. It's... Uh, so let me let me just play devil's advocate for a sec, mate, just, just for the sake of it. And my question on that answer is one around the future versus the past right and in both ways I'll, I'll, I'll argue both and you can kind of give me your thoughts so I completely agree conceptually with what you're saying but every empire ends right the British Empire ends the Roman Empire ended the you know you know the the, the, um, the Ottoman Empire ended like it, the idea that just because it's the biggest and best now it'll necessarily remain the biggest and the best to to the question isn't it possible that so much outperformance the mean reversion just happens that at some point a rising challenger is the better or a better or an alternative option 
simply because you're right, that's been the case for the last 25, 30 years. At some point, if the American century ends, um, not necessarily in a, in, a, you know, in a collapse, but just literally, you know, the, the, if the future starts to be written elsewhere, um, is that not, to some degree at least, worth thinking about? The idea that maybe, for all those things you said, that's already kind of priced in, it's already there, it's already done. The future may well come from somewhere else, just as the Americans took over from the British as a world power, that some other market rises to counter, or at least from this point forward actually grows faster as it, as it, as it becomes a challenger to the US dominance. So again, again as I said, right, I, I, did, I, I, I was very clear to say that this is not about um, a nation. Right. So sure, the best sure. collaboration oh, sorry, okay. software. Market, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So the best collaboration software today comes from Atlassian, which is an Australian company headquartered here and in San Francisco, right. but is listed in America. Right. So if right. the best companies are listed, and this is like, you know, when I'm saying talking about Atlassian as an example, Atlassian mm-hmm. is not, uh, not a large company. Right, so Atlassian is a relatively smallish company. Um, <laughs> Unless you're in Australia, in which case it's massive. Well, if it was listed in Australia, one of the it would be one of the like you know top twenty companies, right? But it's not. Right, right. But so my so my point is, yes, it is possible that the today's mm. dominance of uh, the Apples and the Googles is taken over. But who takes it? It's going to be probably someone right. like Atlassian, right? Or right. if the you know if the next database company is not Oracle, it's it's probably likely to be MongoDB. Here's the way right, I phrase right. that question. Tell me what you use today that you want to use today that mm. is not primarily coming from a U.S. listed company, not an American necessarily company, but not a U.S. listed company. And and until that changes, I think, you know, you can't. And I think there's, there's some other reasons behind that. Right. The, big, the, mm-hmm. the big, So the biggest challenge could be China. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not a democratic country. We don't know what is happening there. We, you know, there is there is there are serious questions about um, how, um, you know, companies are audited there, how companies are actually, you know, managed there, whether they're actually state owned entities or not. All these questions exist. Right. So therefore that I think the trust factor implicitly isn't isn't there. Right now, I don't know why. Why isn't the London Stock Exchange just as large as Nasdaq? Or you know, again, it's, it's just the, it's the it's the unfortunate uh, unfortunate byproduct that mm-hmm. because the capital is here, this is where people look for capital. Therefore, other companies which want to raise capital at that scale come there, and it's a very mm-hmm. difficult cycle to break, right? Yeah, um, and and I, I think so. Again, so for that reason, right? And and I totally agree that the current top guard could disappear, mm-hmm. but I don't see who replaces that top guard. It looks like it's going to be the people like Atlassian which are going to replace the top guard while they're listed there. So um, I, I think it's a function of that listing and capital flow that I'm talking about, not necessarily. I'm not talking about um, national viewpoints. Mm. Last, last, last devil's advocate, man. Last, last question to kind of re-ask the question just because it's fun. Um, you're talking about sort of the, the winner in terms of the largest, the biggest, and the best. To some degree, you don't have to be the biggest or the best to have the best returns over the next 10 years, right? You can simply go from small and insignificant to less small and less insignificant and potentially grow faster in the US markets if there is more of an opportunity to simply have the world recognize you have a market that's worth investing in. <clears throat> Do you put any credence in that? Is there, is there a, if you, if you take that lens, is there a company, you know, no one's going to be bigger than the NASDAQ in 10 years, or at least in theory. But is there is there a country that you might say, well, they're not gonna they're not gonna have the the Atlassians or the Apples or the Amazons or the Facebooks or the MongoDBs or the anything else's, but just just in sheer growth terms, from small to less small, is there a market out there that might challenge the Nasdaq for sheer return, literally just you know value growth over the next decade? 
Yeah, so that is that is possible. Like, but here's 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 the counterpoint of that. So I think. Uh, I think the problem with so we're talking about indices, right? We're talking about when we say markets, we're basically talking about the mm. larger companies in the market, right? So, for example, yeah, yeah. the the problem, like, so I'll, I'll draw the bow here between say the the largest two hundred companies in Australia versus say the Nasdaq one hundred. Now, in my mind, I just can't see how the largest two hundred companies in Australia overall can actually beat out Nasdaq, even though right. it appears on surface that the largest two hundred companies in Australia are cheaper, largely because again these are very old school businesses that are function, you know, that are very reflective of old school dynamics of growth. So their growth is limited by the fact that, well, if you're a bank in Australia, then the growth is limited by growth in Australia, right? You can't really yeah. tap into, because, you know, these are retail banks. You're not really going to tap into foreign, uh, you know, growth elsewhere, right? So I think that is the problem. That, you know, all of those things that I'm saying, I'm sorry, I'm talking again, let me clarify, not from a country point of view, not from a company specific point of view. Now, if you want to, it does not necessarily mean, so I think, I think the index ASX say 200 is going to lose. That's what I think is going to happen. Oh, okay. That doesn't mean that lose you can't to find. What? Sorry, mate. Lose to the so US the Nasdaq, market. yeah, Nasdaq okay, yeah, 100, yeah, for yeah. example. Yeah. So, like, if you're comparing the Nasdaq 100, I think Nasdaq 100 is an easy win over the ASX 200, right? right. That doesn't mean that there are no companies in the ASX 200 that are not lose, good. Yeah. It's that's the other flip side, right? So because you know, fifty percent of a company, or maybe sixty percent of companies, drag down the average, but there might be yeah, yeah. those, you know, at the tail end of the smaller side of the ASX two hundred that are actually worthwhile right. in terms of investing, right? So those are. So I'm talking the non banks, the non insurers, the non financials, and 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 the non miners, right? So there's a lot of stuff that is, in my view, that's interesting. In every market is outside of. Of sort of the usual block, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're comparing just the markets overall, then I think the comparison is just it's, just, it's not even a fair comparison because you're comparing the banks with like Apple and Google. Like, I mean, it, it's you, mm -hmm. how do you even do that comparison? It's just a comparison that you can't win. Um, so, um, you know, as I, as I like to say, right? I mean, you know, if you if you like if you buy a Google, Google is going to be cheaper than probably buying Woolies, right? I mean, and how is that a fair comparison? It's not a fair comparison, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that there's nothing in that 200 that's worthwhile, or it doesn't mean that they, you know, actually, the, the interesting space in my view is like you know it, the. 100 below, like below ASX 100 to say the like ASX 300, that's where like that's where we mostly do our investing, mm -hmm. right? We find companies there, that's where we think that yeah, most of the right. growth is, right? Um, so uh, again, I'm dissociating index, mm -hmm. country, and economy, hard, all, right? all yeah, different exactly. different things altogether. Yeah, yeah. So chi China yeah. is the best economy in terms of growth, best market, I think, at NASDAQ 100. Uh, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you know there's nothing else everywhere else, you know, it doesn't mean that everything else is rubbish. <laughs> not that fascinating i um yeah i, I mean I, that, I think that's awesome i i would look i think and the question is best is also a different question right so it's kind of that sense of i think it's a very decent chance that china outperforms the nasdaq over the next decade right index wise simply because it's a small um index lots and lots of probably below the line under the radar companies in china that could list and could do really well given the size and scale of that economy that that I think is a very decent chance. Um, is it the best investment idea? Well, given the risk, again, there's, a, there's a, that trade-off between how much return you want and how much risk you take, right? So if, you, if maybe you're right about China or maybe I'm right about China, maybe I'm dead wrong, in which case you're probably better off, as you say, mate, even on a – I hate the term risk adjuster because it brings you up a whole lot of academic rubbish about investing. But when you consider that, it may well be that something like a NASDAQ is a, is a better investment. I – 
I don't I don't think there's a I certainly wouldn't be investing in Europe for, for 10 years I don't think that's a, a particularly great way to invest um, again individual companies you say mate would do well but European stocks in particular hard to imagine they have the sort of growth and frankly in a tough economy there and again even though the economy isn't the market those businesses that tend to be more Europe centric I think you know you, you can't imagine they're going to have a spectacularly great decade ahead um, and they certainly I've got the growth potential of, of the US I would I think I think I'd probably take the, the easy option and go NASDAQ with you I have to say um, but I do I do think I think the chance that there are meaningfully more meaningfully large to use those that term twice companies in, the, in China in 10 years time relative to now I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the Chinese index outperform the NASDAQ over the next decade but again I, nor would I bank on it particularly because there's so much speculation there's, there's sovereign risk there's capital flow controls it's a it's a risky risky way to do it um, but if you think about you know the likes of an, and you know these of course but for our listeners the Alibaba's the 10 cents the JD's.com's the Weibo's the ones I can't even think of that you'll remind me of in a second, Doc. Um, you know, the, 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 the sheer ecosystem size in China as it becomes more affluent, and frankly, even it, it's probably even more likely if the US and China continue this kind of Cold War-esque approach where, you know, they're kind of all retreating their own cause and using their own stuff. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the Chinese stock market outperform the Nasdaq over a decade. Am I completely crazy? Um, so, uh, yeah, so while you were saying, I was, the thing I was thinking about is I think here's... Again, when we talk about, I think when we talk about the markets, again, we, we, I think there's a conflation that's happening. So what you're talking about is China's tech. I think I'm, I'm bullish on China tech overall, right? right. right? But but I think what is important to remember is there's a large financial companies in China, large insurance. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually when you invest, if you invest just in the China market, you're going to get a lot of banks and insurers and lot God knows what stuff that you actually can't even understand what's going on, right? Yeah. Um, and if you invest in China tech, I think that has a good chance of outperforming, say, the Nasdaq, mm-hmm. right? For all the arguments, because you know China tech is overall actually cheaper than Nasdaq. Uh, but with potentially higher growth opportunities, right? Uh, so I think that I do agree with, uh, but I, I don't think that the China market, China market overall would give you a mix of a lot of other things that I would not want to touch because, you know, you'd get a lot of bad debt potential with that. You know, Chinese banks would have lent money to very de- bunch of developing countries which are probably now broke and things like that. So, um, yeah, so I think China tech definitely, yes, but right. I'm unsure about a China index, for example. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because when you talk about, even when you talk about the question, as you say, because the US happens to have two index or indices, if they only had one, I, there's a question. If you had to invest in an all US index, if you had to, if you had to, and you don't have to, but just for the fun of it, we talk about regions or economies. If you had to buy the US market writ large, so effectively S and P, right, which includes both New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq companies, would you be as confident? No, so well, so the, I think okay. So the S and P five hundred. See, I think the bigger the index, the mm. more more rubbish you get with it. <laughs> you, <laughs> so I think that is the particular problem with right, the S and P five hundred is that I don't want to own the oil companies or the Exxon Mobiles totally, and stuff yeah. like that. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, so there, there are a bunch of companies that are going to be pulling the S and P five hundred down, yeah. um, and then a bunch of companies that you know, like fifty percent of companies are doing well, fifty percent of companies are doing poorly, yeah, and right. you've got like a big large index which can basically line up with average returns. I wouldn't be so confident. I'm I'm not that confident on the S&P 500 returns as I would mm, be, say, mm, on the mm. NASDAQ 100 returns, um, right? I think the NASDAQ 100 is likely to continue to do well because it's 
it's basically got the forefront of tech, um, yeah, right. you know, and, and some non-tech companies, but mostly tech companies there. So I, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, but I would not be confident of the S&P 500 as a whole. I don't, I don't want to go on a massive tangent. We have a, we've had a good channel, which I really have loved, mate. Thank you for being so so generous and sharing. Um, but yeah, that idea, yeah, because there are two different indices in the US, we kind of get a choice that we don't have anywhere else. You know, if we bought, we, we don't tend to talk about the Australian all tech index because it's an index rather than exchange or as you say china tech or argentinian mining or russian farmland or you know you know what i mean like from a from a sector perspective the us is really remarkable and 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 a really different kind of approach because of that second exchange which really does change the way we think about that as i say if it was a single economy or a single combined exchange if you know if the asx was split up into three or four different exchanges there may well be one we liked maybe they're not actually given your given your previous statements but you know what i mean um, having that having that difference by index and by exchange does kind of give the US a different flavour maybe than the others that have really just a single major dominant exchange and index. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah, that I agree with that. All right, let's We've talked that. about that this a lot. Yeah, yeah, we have. I thought that was really good. I enjoyed it. Uh, good question. Thank you very much for asking the question, Tristan. That was good. Question from Rob Doc. This is a very company-specific one, but I liked it because <laughs> I think you'll like it too. Question for the podcast. As always, great podcast, gents. I feel lately all the talk is around the banks and airlines and was hoping we could mix it up a little. I think we're both agreed there. <laughs> I came across a little company called Integrated Research. The code is IRI. And thought it would be great to hear your likes and dislikes and comments about the company. Keep up the great work, Rob. And I thought, you know what? A, we try and get as many questions as we can. And while I said we don't do super specific stuff, just the idea of maybe talking about something other than <laughs> than banks and airlines or or even even tech in a, in a really generic sense or an overseas sense, just a chance to have a look at an Australian tech company, little littleish little company, um, but doing some interesting things. I have got a history with integrated research, Doc. But do you have a view on it before I weigh in? No, no. You you go for it. Uh, yeah, it's more company that you would like than I would have anything. I'd probably land up saying oh, something. Oh, you don't like it? Well, oh, I, I, I don't. Um, I'm not. Uh, what would I say? I have mixed views on it. Oh, okay. Will you, will <laughs> you share I'll those let, with me after I share mine? Yeah, yeah. You go first. All right, here we go. So Integrated Research was, I think, the very first recommendation of Motley Fool Share Advisor, the service I run. Now, I didn't make that recommendation for full disclosure. It was made by my predecessor in the role. Um, and it was a stock that I then subsequently sold after we made a, a good amount of money for our members. Unfortunately, I sold it too early. So, so is it one of the couple of, you know, I, I don't, I haven't sold a lot of stuff too early in the past, I have to say. If I, if I make a mistake, something tends to be too late. But in this case, it was too early, at least thus far. Integrated Research is kind of, it, it's, and again, Doc, you're the tech expert, mate, so you may have different different um, characterization of this one, but it seems to me that Australia does a decent job of providing add-ons to other things. And Integrated Research's business basically was built on a single software platform that does a whole lot of different stuff. Everything from monitoring bank transactions through to monitoring and recording call centers. Um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a business that kind of, they use a single bit of software, Prognosis, I'm pretty sure that's still the name of it, um, and they kind of tack on uh, use cases to what they say is a, is a really high quality sort of base platform. So that their, their advantage is the, the base is built, they can simply add to that in a really in a really interesting way. They've had great partnerships in the past with in, in this contact center stuff in particular with uh, Skype for Business, with Cisco, with others. And they've kind of, they're, they're kind of, you know, it's almost the, um, I want to say this politely without, I don't mean to be detrimental at all, by the way, but it's kind of like that, that symbiotic relationship between kind of the big shark and little fish that swim around the gills, right? It's that idea of Cisco's going to go do its thing. If we can get Cisco to kind of sell our, our solution as part of theirs, 
they'll make a lot of money. And they've been really successful for a long time doing it. So um, it's been a bit of a bumpy ride. We sold out of the company because the founder and, and previous CEO stepped aside and they also changed CEOs in reasonably quick succession. Uh, the price was at the time not stupidly cheap. And I just thought there were too many red flags in terms of that management stepping away. I was probably clouded. We had in the full universe another company called Infomedia, not to be confused with Integrated Research, whose CEO would come back every few years where the business was terrible and kind of fix it and then walk away and the company would crash again and he'd come back. And the thought was this is such a small specialised business without the founder and original CEO there kind of pushing the, pushing the business along, making sure it was doing what it was supposed to be doing. He sold out his shares as well. Um, I was just mindful that... You know, when the, when, a, when, a, when, the, when the big guy steps away from the table um, and given the price wasn't super cheap at the time, it felt like, yeah, there's a risk we don't need to take. Now, in hindsight, the new management team managed to go on to bigger and better things and maybe in hindsight that was a mistake. Um, so that's, that's the reason we sold it. But look, I, it's never going to be a world beater. It's never going to have its own... Its biggest draw, drawback is it's never going to have its own position, right? It's always going to be selling an addition to someone else's software and that's a tough place to be if the software loses favour or... The, the partner ch- changes, you know, preferred suppliers or something else, you can see really, really significant fall-offs. But as I said, thus far, I've been wrong. They've gone on to bigger and better things. Um, it's one, I've, one I keep watching. I don't think at the moment the shares are, again, particularly inexpensive. So I'm not in a hurry to re-recommend them, but it's one that may well make its way back onto the share advisor scorecard at some point. All right, Doc, how, what, what, how are your feelings mixed? <laughs> well, so so I, I think in the so when the company was recommended, I think in in Share Advisor, uh, mm-hmm. I think at that time, a lot of um, equipment that say banks. So, so for example, they have this prognosis software, right? This prognosis yep. software basically is used in you know things like stock exchanges, you know, by banks for like you know yeah. credit card monitoring and stuff like that. Um, you know, manufacturing offices, uh, like basically it's a monitoring software. That runs, I understand, on premise, which was, I think, which which made sense then. What I don't know is how this now works in the cloud world. Right, and yeah. as more and more software and, you know, applications basically move to the cloud. So everything that they basically kind of do is now done in the cloud by a bunch of other companies. Mm-hmm. So how are they going to compete with that? Um, now, there's probably going to be a long you know, like there's, there's going to be this hybrid cloud sort of environment where, you know, like a bank like mm-hmm. Westpac might have like their own server room plus some stuff in the cloud and therefore you need this in the server room. But it almost feels like that's the legacy business that they're going to be serving. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I haven't looked at what they're doing in the cloud and how they're yeah. going to comp- compete with all the other cloud guys. So that's, yeah. So as you said, it looks expensive for that. Um given sort of where the industry is headed um, and, and you know, the top line growth hasn't been extraordinary again, you know, which to me yeah. again suggests the issues that, you know, it, it is selling into a market that's probably probably shrinking over mm-hmm. time. Um, so that's a challenging place to be in. Um, yeah. So, so that, the that's share price is about where it was three years ago for the record. So it's kind of one of those, it's gone, you know, it's gone up and down in the middle of nowhere and kind of back to where it started, but really has struggled to... To, to really get meaningful growth. I think that's the problem with being a small niche kind of add-on software. It's really, really hard to break into a much, much larger industry. I guess that's the pipe dream for these guys. If they can find a way to use that monitoring software in some bigger and badder ways, um, badder in a good way, if I can say that, um, that's the opportunity for the company. But in the meantime, it does feel like a reasonably, it's, you know, 
You know, it give, I don't think it's super expensive, by the way, Doc. It's about 24 times earnings. I don't think it's stupid expensive, um, but it doesn't feel cheap enough given the lack of growth at the moment to to be investing yeah. there unless you really believe there is some breakout opportunity that they're on the on the yeah. verge of grasping. Yeah, so that, that's, that's why I said. I said mixed feelings in the sense that, you know, yeah. again, a niche company, which is top-line growth is not great, but, you know, it's okay, then you do want to pay 24 times earnings, you know, probably with headwinds. Right, right. There, that's a sort of the. So I said, yeah, it's a company that I, I look at uh, every now and then. But you know, this is a company that probably want to buy cheaper. Is would be my guess. But I think that's fair. I think that's fair. My question from Paul. This is hi guys. I have a question about capital gains. Well, not so much about how capital gains works, but managing capital gains in preparation for tax time. He says I have through ShareSight calculated my gains this year. ShareSight's a um share monitoring kind of record record keeping software calculated my gains this year and in turn plug that into a few online capital gains calculators he's getting ahead i like it i've set aside the donation to the tax man and have reinvested the rest good idea i have two options one play it safe and keep the money in the bank or two place the amount on an etf and let it ride the waves he says i know what i should do and that is option one but with almost zero interest that is not overly appealing I understand you can't offer personal advice, but would be interested in your insights. Has such a topic been discussed on the podcast before? Listen every week and love it. Keep up the terrific work. Cheers, Paul. Now, we have talked about short-term cash holdings. We've never talked about capital gains money being set aside. Doc, what are you going for? Option one, play it safe. Or option two, whack it on ETF and let it ride. Well, you know, Paul, uh, look, can't give you any personal advice. I can say what I do. If if I have been that diligent and calculated my gains and I know how much I have to pay, I would be keeping it in cash largely because, you know, it's not like there's not that much time between when you calculate and when you pay the tax man, right? Um, so, I, you know, I've not put it in ETF largely because, again, that fluctuates versus I like to know. If I have to pay X amount, I have that X amount available to pay the tax man. Yeah. Um, uh, otherwise, a tax man might decide to charge me interest, which is <laughs> which can cost me a lot more. So that's what I would do. Um, that's my personal preference again. Nice. Um, Paul, you, mate, dude, come on. You, you've actually answered your own question, but you're still, you're still, you're still emailing us. What I love is he's messaging us message on Twitter just to kind of say, I know I've got to do the right thing, but can you please, please let me do the wrong thing? No, Paul, no. We're not going to let you do the wrong thing. You know, you know the answer to this one, mate. You honestly know the answer to this one. You're, 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 you're messing us on the, in the vain hope that maybe we might feel kind or maybe we've uh, lost control of our senses and we're saying, yeah, go on, put it on red. Take it down to the casino or when it's open and uh, whack it on red, see how you go. No, that is a terrible, terrible idea. Um, and, and I got to say, Paul. I, I mean, I'm, I'm partly jesting, mate, but but it also it's also a serious answer. Um, you've seen the last three months, dude. Come on, like you know, you may you put you put it on uh, on the on the ETF now. Maybe the market goes up thirty percent. You're a genius. Maybe it goes down thirty percent, and all of a sudden, as you say, Doc, you either got a tax fine, we got to sell stuff at the bottom of the market to pay a tax bill you already knew was coming. Uh, Paul, seriously, dude. I'm sorry. I know you'd like to earn more. Don't do it. Keep it in cash. Pay the bill. You will. Sleep better, your finances will be better off. Just don't do it. Don't do it. All right, next one, mate. I love this question. This is from Mark. Uh, Dear Scott and Doc, I listen to you three times a week and enjoy learning from your discussions. Thank you, Mark. Very kind. He says, CSL is going nowhere. And I will correct you a little bit. What you're saying there is CSL has gone nowhere. We don't know where it's going next. No no one does. Um, He says, but on Tuesday, UBS note says CSL is forecast a 13% three-year EPS 
CAGR, C-A-G-R. So let's go to that again. CSL's forecast, a 13% three-year EPS CAGR or C-A-G-R and rated a buy. Here's his question, Doc. What the hell <laughs> is an EPS CAGR? <laughs> For such a large company, is 13% good, bad or ugly? Should the share price be expected to go up 13% each year? What is a good EPS CAGR? Is it important? Thanks and full on Mark. Uh, this is just a fun, a fun question to talk about and, and a wonderful question, Mark. Uh, good on you for asking the question. Oh, question mark. Hey, that's a bit of a pun. Uh, you probably heard that before. Sorry, Mark. Uh, <laughs> just occurred to me. I thought I'd share it. EPS Kagar, mate. Let's break that right, 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 right down. We'll do it bit mm-hmm. by bit. What is EPS, dude? All right. EPS is the earnings per share. So if your company earns whatever billions of dollars it might have earned, <laughs> you divide it by the total number of shares out and you get the total earnings on a per share basis, right? So, and the EPS is just that. KGAR right, so stands if we for- had, com- Okay, sorry, go. No, no, I was gonna say KGAR is just compound annual growth rate. So it's just talking about how the EPS is changing over a period of three years. In this case, UBS's note basically assumes or forecasts, predicts that the growth is gonna be 13% per year for uh, CSL and uh, yeah, that's, you're going to say something. I was no, well, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. So I was going to say that you know, if you think about, I'm going to just throw some numbers on this one. So let's say a company earns 100 bucks and there's 100 shares outstanding. So 100 shares, 100 bucks. The earnings per share is one dollar per share. 100 divided by 100 is one. Keep it simple. One dollar per share is the earnings per share for that company. Then, as you say, the KGO is the growth rate. So I'm going to make my life even easier. Doc, I'm going to say 10% growth rate. We'll get back to your question mark, but let's say 10%. If your dollar in earnings per share has a 10% growth rate, then next year it's going to be a dollar ten, right? Because a dollar plus 10% is a dollar ten. So that's the first year. Now, why they say CAGR and why the compound bit is important is because they're not saying it'll go up 10 cents every year. That'd be a simple growth rate, you know, 10% every year, add 10, add another 10, add another 10 on your dollar. Pretty straightforward. When you've got a compound rate, what it's saying is the number then, like compound interest, like compound returns for investing, goes up at a faster rate. So your dollar becomes $1.10 on the first 10%. The next time you're not adding another 10 cents, you're adding another 11 cents. Because 10% of $1.10 is 11 cents. So you go from $1.10 to $1.21. And then you're adding another 10% of that, so you're adding another 12.1 cents and so on and so forth. So you see how that compound growth is important because it's not just 10% on the original number, it's 10% compounded. So the last year's growth, the last year's earnings, go up another 10% and another 10%. That's how we get fantastic long-term compound returns in investing. So that's why they make very clear that to everybody that this is a compound growth rate. Okay, so that so did I reasonably get that right, Doc? Yeah, that's absolutely fantastically correct. So, so UBS is saying over the next three years, they expect 13% per year compounded is what, they, yep. what they're expecting. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the EPS CAGA. CAGA is the kind of the way us finance boffins like to pronounce it to make us all seem smart, but C-A-G-R, mm. compound annual growth rate. Mm-hmm. Now his next question, mate. For such a large company, is 13% good, bad, or ugly? How would you contextualize a 13% growth rate, mate? Well, I mean, okay. So the, the question, is it good, bad, or ugly? I mean, it's definitely good in my view. Like, I mean, this is talking about just the earnings growth without any connection to the share price. Yep. Um, you know, dissociating the two, I mean, 13% growth, you know, double-digit growth, 
um, for a large company, that's pretty pretty that's pretty solid performance, right? That basically means the company is is really doing a good job of growing its earnings over over sort of you know three to five year periods, uh, and and doing it from a large base is, is always hard. So they're doing a good job of that. So yeah, that that is definitely definitely good. Now, I'm going to speculate here, just kind of working back from the market averages, and we won't go into the detail, but. I would reckon on the ASX, the average compound growth rate for earnings alone would be something like seven or eight percent. Is that would that be your guess if you kind of just weighted average across history? Well, look, I would say it's lower, right? Probably like okay. you know, given the banks and all, I would say that probably they're growing at like five percent. You know, EPS KGAR. So this is way above average, is what you're trying to say. Is right. it's, yeah, that's. I just want to, yeah, put that thirty percent in some context. Now it's not as good yeah. as some other companies. What are, What are some of your favorite companies that people might know that have better than thirteen percent growth rates? If I put well, you on the spot. So, so like you know, like uh, so, let's take or something like Altium, for example, right? I mean, Altium mm-hmm. would probably deliver um, EPS growth rates, you know, above twenty percent, for example, on on average, right? Um, so, but you know, like again, for a large company of this size, you know, like with a hundred billion plus market capitalization, I mean, this is pretty darn good, right? I mean, nice. so yeah, that, this is a tick in my book. That you know. All right, now the next question. This is where it gets real. So hopefully, Mark, we've taken you on this journey so far and other listeners. His next question is a reasonable one. Given all that, should the share price be expected to go up 13% each year? Uh, no, uh, because that, <laughs> that, the answer is easy. It's no. Because, you know, share price in the short term can go up up or down for any number of reasons. Uh, you know, you could have somebody tweet something bad about uh, CSL and the share price could go down. <laughs> <laughs> for example, um, yep. you know, or somebody could tweet something good about CSL and the share price could go up, right? So that that could happen. Like, I mean, I'm guessing he's talking about whether or not we should expect the average growth rate in share prices to be about 13% um, over, say, the three-year period. Now, that, that would be true under one or two assumptions, right? It would be true if the current valuation, that is the price to earnings, for example, um, the price you're paying per share for uh, earnings per share that the company has, if if that stays roughly what it is today, then you would expect to get somewhere around the 13% compound growth rate, right? right? I mean, you're yep. right. But that is not necessarily going to happen for any number of reasons, right? Because yep. at the end of three years, I think at that point, what people, the, the valuation people will attach to CSL at that point would really depend on what is going to happen in the next three, five, and so on years, right? And if that future, for example, is a 20% compound uh, growth rate in earnings, then people might actually attach a much higher valuation than they're currently attaching without going into the details. CSL is a bit expensive, uh, Mm. but it's expensive for very good reasons. Uh, You know, like it's it's such a high quality company providing with such a big moat that it has always enjoyed a pretty substantial like valuation premium for you know normally you would not pay that much for companies that say are growing at say 15 percent right. per annum but people right. have paid traditionally very high a uh, higher multiple for a company like csl and, and i'd say for good reasons so again it all depends on what the future multiple is going to be yeah. uh, uh, for that company at that point in time which would depend on future earnings perfect summary mate so and the other thing by the way is it might be undervalued now right so sentiment always is the first thing and then future expectations of earnings are the next thing um, yeah. And that's, you know, it's entirely possible a company, for example, if the market was expecting a 20% KGO over the next three years, UBS might come out and say it's going to be 13%. We're saying that's a decent result and it would be. 
But if the market's saying, well, hang on, we thought it was going to be 20, you'll actually see the share price crater, right? Because all of a sudden, this is a business mm. that's only going to grow about two-thirds as fast as the market thought. On the flip yeah. side, if the market was pricing it for 5% growth, you might say, hey, we're, we're stoked with that. Let's put the, let's put the price up. So, Mark, mm. yeah, as Doc said, if, if the company was always fairly valued, fairly priced, never going to happen, right? Never, ever going to happen. The academics believe the markets are efficient. That is complete crap, if you excuse the mm. language. Um, if, if, if it was always fairly valued, then yes, you should expect earnings would track, the price would track earnings dollar for dollar, you know, percentage point for percentage point. Uh, but as Doc says rightly, it's all about the performance over that three years. In other words, is UBS right in the first case, right? If they're dead wrong, then you'll see the share price move meaningfully. And then at the end of that three-year period, if all of a sudden growth is now 2% a year forever, then the market's going to hate that. If the, if the future in three years, in 2023, UBS's next note says growth is going to be 25%, then you see the share price spike, and that's always going to happen. So um, that's is it important is his last question? Yes, it is, um, in the sense that if you are someone who believes that you can approximate some sort of value by approximating some sort of level of profitability, and I say approximate clearly, right, because there are the deep value guys who have complex spreadsheets. There are people who kind of look just generally and say, well, that could be about that big. That's good. But generally, you know, we all internalize some version of that for the future and say it, it, it could be a certain size by a certain date. It's worth buying or it's not. So yes, absolutely. The growth of its earnings, well, the level of earnings and the growth of its earnings are absolutely important when it comes to assessing how much you should pay for a company or frankly, even if it's worth buying at all. Would you agree with that, mate, or have I, have I misconstrued? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree again. You know, and I, was, I was not implying at all uh, anything about CSL's valuation. I have not looked at it. I just have great admiration for that company. It's a fantastic company. Um, yeah. Very good. Let's move on to a question from Greg. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Hi, Scott and Doc. Question for the potty. Please use my first name only if I'm fortunate enough to have my question answered on the amazing, insightful and outright must-listen podcast. Strangely enough, Greg, after that opening, we will answer your question. Thank you for asking it <laughs> and only use your first name. It says, a bit of a background and a very sincere thank you also. I'm a subscriber to Extreme Opportunities. Well done, Doc. And I started investing in shares in December 2019. He says, nothing like starting right before a crash. It was smooth sailing through to February 20th before the proverbial hit the fan. At my lowest point in March, my portfolio was down 51%. That's got to hurt. But through listening mm-hmm. to your podcast and your entire back catalogue through to 2018 and hearing your advice regarding continuing to invest at regular intervals, not worrying about timing the bottom and reiterating that shares have always bounced back to record highs, I kept buying small lots weekly throughout March, April and May. It was equal parts exciting, buying at great prices, and terrifying, seeing all that red still in my portfolio. If it wasn't for your advice, I'm certain I wouldn't have had the courage to continue to put money into the market. Well, Greg, we're, we're pretty stoked about that. I'm, I don't mind saying, I'm sure Doc agrees with me. He says, fast forward to today. I've since doubled the amount I had invested into the market up to Feb 20, and things have turned around from a 51% loss to a 12% overall gain. That's pretty good, mate. What I like though is what he says next. Who knows what's around the corner? but it feels a heck of a lot better seeing green than mountains of red. And what I've learned through this COVID period has been invaluable. Are you a beer or five if we ever bump into each other? So I just thought that was worth sharing. I mean, it's obviously about us and we, yeah, we've got egos, but more importantly was kind of, you know, that's, that's the message we've been trying to share and trying to send. And, and thankfully, Greg is a living example for those of you out there who are thinking about it or who maybe, you know, are these, are these two knuckleheads on the money? We could have been wrong. Things would always have changed. But that basic advice of what Greg's been able to follow and has done pretty well. All right. So he says, anyway, my question is, 
I'm currently invested in around 20 ASX listed stocks. I'm looking to diversify outside of Australia. ETFs seem a logical and simple way to achieve that, but how effective is using ASX traded ETFs for exposure to markets outside of Australia versus investing directly on those international exchanges? And he gives a point score. He says, for example, if investing directly in NASDAQ shares is a 10 out of 10 way to diversify, where would buying an ETF such as the NDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100 ETF, on the ASX fall on a scale of 1 to 10? Or another way of phrasing it is what are the cons of investing into ASX traded ETFs given the rest of my shares are also listed on the ASX? Thanks in advance for the help. And he says, P.S. I'm not going to go with hashtag get doc on Insta which I was really disappointed about, Doc. But then he says, he's clearly not caving, so let's try reverse psychology. Keep Doc off Insta. See if that works. <laughs> Hashtag fool on. All right, really, really cool. A, long, a longish question, but I wanted to read it because it, uh, it was an important one and hopefully a useful one for our other listeners. Doc, he's, he's got ASX listed stocks currently. He wants mm. to in, diversify into ETFs. What are the cons, if there are any, or wh- how, would you, how would you categorize or compare Investing directly in an ETF, say NASDAQ ETF on the ASX versus investing directly into international shares. Well, okay. So uh, he gave invent scores, right? So the, for let me for okay, let me start with a positive first. There's no <laughs> real disadvantage to buying ETFs in the sense that you're buying an ETF. It gives you exposure to the said index. It does that appropriately and correctly. And just because if you're buying NASDAQ 100 in, for example, in Australia, or whether you're buying NASDAQ 100 in Japan, you're still buying NASDAQ 100. It just happens to be list, you know, you're just buying the version that trades here. It accounts for the currency and all those factors. So it's it's really like buying NASDAQ 100, the index. Right. And there is no real downside if your interest is in buying the index, right? Now, we do have a couple of services here that we run that have US shares. We have shooting stars that look at mid cap to high, you know, small to mid cap, you know, uh, high growth sort of high, like 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 EO, but uh, looking at you know U.S. listed stocks, um, you know, again a fantastic service that has done really well for our members. We recently started yep. a cloud service that looks at both ASX and U.S. stocks for, and that, that's not market cap limited, but it's focused on sort of a cloud. If you're interested in buying individual stocks, then uh, then again, I would say that, you know, of course, the individual stocks are better than the the ETF just because you can choose, right? You know, it's like exactly mm. as I tell everyone that do not buy ASX 200 because it's you're going to get mm. sapped by the banks, banks of the miners. You, you have so much more choice when mm. you're just going outside of the ETFs, just the same logic. So if, if I had to give, you know, uh, 10 by 10 for buying on NASDAQ or on NYSE, <laughs> I would give 1 by 10 for buying the ETF. But I will say this, that if, if you are not buying individual shares, like, you know, global individual shares, Mm. then do not, then at least buy uh, or think about, as as he's doing, about buying the ETFs because that's the second best thing you could do um, for diversification point of view and getting exposure to different industries and so on and so forth. So so that would be my thing, you know, absolutely consider, you know, it's much easier now to buy individual shares external, like for global individual shares, especially in the U.S. markets. Um, But... If, if that's too hard or you don't want to do it for whatever reason, then, then the ETFs, you know, we have a couple of yes, re- references that you have recommended in, on EO exactly for those reasons that, you know, you can get exposure to certain um, certain indi- indi- 
industries, certain sectors, and just get some diversification onto your um, onto your um, on, onto your portfolio. So that's mm. the what I would say. I think that's a really good summary, mate. I will add a couple of thoughts. I think from a pure diversification perspective, it actually makes no difference at all between the two um, in the sense that um, assuming you're doing it for the reasons you want, more tech, international shares, international tech, whatever combination of that, whether you were to buy, and let's just make it, I mean, no one's going to actually do this, but whether you bought the NASDAQ ETF on the ASX or you bought each of the 100 NASDAQ stocks in proportion on the NASDAQ exchange, you're going to have the same exposure. And in fact, the advantage is you do it A, on the ASX and B, in a single trade rather than having to buy 100 different companies to get that same exposure. So given the given the international diversification is your aim, that is a spectacularly good way to do it. On top of that, as with the ASX, by the way, you know we're, we're not saying, saying, hey, just buy the ASX 300 ETF and, and do nothing else on the ASX. We're saying we think as, as a company, as individuals, you can beat the market by carefully and selectively buying you know, the right companies. It's probably also true, or we, we believe it's true, you can do the same on the US by buying individual NASDAQ-listed stocks, for example. And so that's, you know, the, the, the advantage of buying into individual stocks is always you have, you, run, you have the chance of beating the market. Of course, the risk of buying individual stocks is you can lose to the market. And so an ETF is a really, really simple way of making sure you get exactly the market return, less a tiny amount of fees. Um, and so I think from, from that perspective, I think it's a perfectly great idea. So if it's, if it's only diversification you're looking for specifically, then yeah, just buy on the ASX and be done with it. You've done exactly what you need to do. You've done. You got your result. You know, go and do your thing. Um, only that I've be personally, mate. I don't. I think you probably agree from what you're saying, but I'd only buy. I'd, I'd only buy individual stocks. You know, on foreign exchanges if I actually specifically wanted to try and beat those beat the market. And again, I think th- we think people should over time if they're confident enough and have the time and effort and inclination and expertise. Um, but yeah, if you if you want to beat the market by individual stocks, by definition. If you don't or you can't or you don't want to, an ETF and a particular ASX ETF is a super, super easy way. Everyone should at least do that, right? I'm pretty sure we agree on that. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I agree with that. All I was saying is that we've got some couple of beautiful services, you know, Shooting Stars is one of them, Cloud Disruptors is another one of them. There I think go. people should look into those um, if they're Don't interested in buying some... I'm just talking about services I am involved. Poor old bloody share advisor, you know. I'm just talking about services I'm involved in. Shooting stars, you know. Think about it this way. Shooting stars sounds so much better than just saying share advisor, right? I mean, you know, shooting and stars. I mean, think about it. fighting words. Where's the mute button? Hang on, I'll turn you off. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> just think about, you know, this rocket that's going towards the star, you know. That's, it just sounds different. It's just, you know, I'm Dude, just the marketing team are going to claim you soon. The marketing team are going to claim that absolutely. Um, I look, yeah, I think those are great services, by the way. Or, or, there are plenty uh, of options that we, we have here in Australia for investors. We absolutely would encourage you to. Um, uh, have those services been around long enough to have track records you'd be prepared to share, Doc, or probably too young, aren't they, those two? Oh, you know, like I mean, shooting uh, shooting stars has been here for uh, has been now running for a year. It's like you know, absolutely demolishing the market uh, nice. right now. Like you know, you if if you had invested actually, like you know, that's what our scorecard is showing, which we invest after yeah. recommending to members. It's yep. you know, like it's, you know, it's a thirty seven percent or something like that outperformance with respect to markets in like you know in <laughs> about good. a year. Um, nice. We will say so far so good, right? We don't take victory laps, particularly not early ones. So yeah. things could yeah. change. And, and that's the sort of result you can get. Yeah, and and uh, cloud disrupt has just started, but I mean, you know, like yeah. Shared Advisor, you pointed out, Shared Advisor's US scorecard has had a, you know been around for like what eight years, and it has a fantastic run. So, 
yeah, doing pretty well. So yeah, there you go. Invest in the US, absolutely. Invest in US individual stocks if you want to and you can. If you only want diversification, then there's no need to, but we think that it's worth making the effort because there's plenty of returns on offer if you do that. All right, question from Lacey, mate. A very different one we haven't, I don't think, answered before. Lacey says, hi, Scott and Doc. Got a mailbag question for you. Do both of you invest as, in quotes, sophisticated investors? Close quote. If so, in your experience, have you found this to be highly beneficial? If that's too personal a question, I completely understand. If you prefer not to answer, no worries at all. Hashtag full on, plus a thumbs up and a smiley emoji, mate. So Lacey uses more emojis in that message than I think I've ever used in my entire life. Not a big emoji fan, certainly. The thumbs up one, I'm not a big fan anyway. Um, do, you, do you have a view? Do you want to answer or would you rather me pick it up? Well, I can answer. So, Lacey, um, so the definition of sophisticated investor has actually got nothing to really to do with sophistication of the investor. It's really <laughs> got more to do with how much funds you have. So if your uh, accountant is willing to certify that you're a sophisticated investor because you have certain <laughs> amounts of assets, then you're a sophisticated investor. I think it gives you, uh, it's just one way of giving you the license to buy into certain types of assets that may not be available otherwise to um, other investors. And really, why is it not available to to the general public? Because it's just riskier. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's really it. There is no real advantage per se uh, or benefit to being a sophisticated investor unless you 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 have high risk appetite. So that's really what I would say about it. Yeah, I think that's right, Matt. So the, the uh, to, I think Lacey knows that based on the way she put it in inver- inverted commas. But for everyone who's listening, you can be you can be qualified by your accountant as a sophisticated investor if you have a gross income of a quarter of a million dollars or more per annum in each of the previous two years, or you have net assets of at least two point five million dollars. So if you meet either of those tests, you can be qualified as a sophisticated investor. I think this is marketing spin one hundred and one, Doc. I have to say. Because mm. what it lets you do, or sorry, what, what it lets other people do is give you less information. If I want to buy shares as a non-sophisticated <laughs> investor, I've got, to, I've got to read a really big prospectus the company's got to put out and they've got to say to me, look, here's everything you need to know. Here's all the detail. Here's the very clear rules on what they have to tell me or not tell me. I take all that information and I can make my decision, right? When I'm a sophisticated, hashtag, air quote, sophisticated investor, they say to me, hey, Scott, throw us $100,000, will you? I want, to, I want you to invest in this thing. And I say, well, have you got any paperwork? I say, oh, yeah. Here's a couple of sheets of paper. <laughs> uh, like you know, it's, everyone wants to feel like they're a sophisticated investor because it makes the means they've achieved something, they've arrived, they've done something wonderful. And that's all fine, but I got to say, mate, yes, you're right. There are some assets you get to invest in you wouldn't otherwise because some things aren't worth doing prospectuses for, right? If you've got a really small, I don't know, let's say you want to, I don't know, I, I'm, I'll, I'll use some random example. Let's say you want to invest in the local cafe, right? They're not going to be able to put together a full prospectus, a full listing for a public offering, pay ASX listing fees, all that kind of stuff. But they can say, look, here, you know, you're, you're a sophisticated investor. Here's a couple of pages of our last lot of P&Ls and, and some you know, quick bullet points. Do you, want to, do you want to throw us some money or don't you? That's kind of the equivalent, right? So, so there's reasons why companies don't. Or if they want to raise money super fast, they get to say, look, we're going to raise some money like this week. Um, we haven't got time to do all that stuff. We're only going to go sophisticated investors because we only give them a small amount of information and they can make their own investment. The idea is, as as you inferred, Doc, sophisticated investors are supposed to be smart enough, capable enough, whatever. Now, I've got to say, if I, I love my mother to bits. If she got a $3 million inheritance tomorrow, would that you know would I, would I feel really great about her being qualified as a sophisticated investor and all of a sudden, you know, being investing in those sort of companies based on people who are preying on her, you know, sudden wealth? Absolutely not. So I think, the, as you say, mate, the definition is terrible. 
Um, it, it really is, I think, taking advantage of people. Now, there are plenty of sophisticated investors who genuinely know what they're doing and don't need to worry about the extra paperwork. So it's not a bad classification in and of itself, but I wouldn't be in too much of a rush. If you're out there and you've got you know, more than a quarter million dollars a year in, in income or you've got more than two and a half million dollars in assets, don't be in too much of a rush to be a so-called sophisticated investor because there's every chance the information you're not getting is either great or that's the little hidden stuff that you really wish you had known. So I, I gotta say, mate, I, I think I'm not a super risky investor anyway, but I, I don't reckon I would want to be investing in stuff that only was valid sophisticated investors on the basis of less information. I think there's already enough questionable information going around. I'd rather take more than less. You? Yeah, I, I, yeah that's basically what I, well, uh, what, what I said. I mean, you know, basically yeah. it's typically because it's more risky. That's why, you know, uh, there's less information out there and, you know, there's no, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> here's the thing with investing, right? I mean, the thing with investing is that it looks like although other people are getting to invest in in some <laughs> opportunity that we are that's not getting, right. to, getting, getting yeah. to invest in, but there's always a flip side, right? You don't get to invest in something because also it prevents, you know, you from like, you know, utter catastrophe of, you know, loss of all your funds, right? And maybe certain people are okay and capable of taking all that loss of funds. Um, and that's fine by me. So I, I think what I, what I find is that, you know, it's the, the happy middle ground is 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 good, um, right? Yeah, I, guess, I think that's a good answer. Uh, mate, now we mentioned before Greg's question and comments. Greg was a bit of a fan of your work at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, so it would be silly of me. It would be a shame, and frankly, I'd be in trouble from the boss if I didn't tell us they can subscribe themselves. You can get some of the very same goodness that Greg's got over the last few months and join Doc and Kevin at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Now, for less than the price of a cup of coffee a week, which is stupidly cheap, and I say it every week, and I don't care because it just is like, you know... I don't, think, I don't think Bruce is going to fire me for saying it's stupidly cheap because I'm not calling him stupid. I'm just saying I think he's a bit light on the pencil is all I'm thinking. You could probably add a zero to that price or at least a one in the front, but he chooses not to. And I guess, uh, look, you know, the good news is it means that plenty of investors who otherwise mightn't give you guys a go are prepared to because, frankly, for less than a cup of coffee a week, for, you know, no one's going out at the moment. Use that money. Use that money you saved on coffee over the last couple of months and buy yourself a subscription to Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. The guys are looking for... The stocks that are small, underfollowed, a bit under the radar, with big, bright futures, and we should say a decent amount of extra risk. So take that in mind if and when you join. I think you should. So bear that in mind because that's important. But they are looking for the big, big, big multi-bagger winners of tomorrow. And if and when they do, I think their subscribers, their members are going to do very, very well. So if you want to join Doc and Kevin at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, go to fool.com.au forward slash e podcast pretty straightforward eo for extreme opportunities fool.com.au forward slash eo podcast and you can get some of the goodness that greg has benefited from and i'm pretty sure although we can give no guarantees and no promises i have a sneaking suspicion that the extreme opportunities members are going to be very well served over the coming years so they are still long-term investors like the rest of fooldom we're not doing anything short term but these guys are doing heaps of deep dive research to try and find the very best winners of tomorrow. Again, there'll be some losers because that's the way that the service rolls. But if they get the winners they're looking for, despite the occasional loser, the returns will be very, very good. So no promises, no guarantees, but I reckon they're well and truly worth a look. So join Doc, join Kevin. You like him on the podcast, you'll love him inside Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. All right, mate, that out of the way, that wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes 
or, as always, your favourite Android podcast app for the more discerning smartphone owners. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely on iTunes or your Android app. And, of course, please do tell your friends. We're sure they could use some foolishness as well. And you can get a dose of foolishness, a regular email that I send, plus some marketing material, to be straight and to be honest, in your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week. In fact, we'll be back on Tuesday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.